This is the Workin' With series, presented by your host, Haley Sudbury. Listen in each month to find out who we're working with. Haley sits down with some of the world's most exciting leaders and entrepreneurs to chat about the companies they love, their definition of success, and the real secret behind it all, their superpower. So I'm here today with Bethany Covey, co-founder of Tech Will Save Us, and I'm sitting here in one of the workshops on Viner Street. And uh, I've had a bit of a bit of a tour, and it's a pretty impressive setup, seeing everything from kind of the packing line through to to product development. So thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Great to chat. I mean, Bethany and I we met um, a couple of months ago now at a London and Partners event, and talked about some of the challenges that we face as entrepreneurs, and also some of the wins and fabulous things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd love you to sort of share a little bit about um, how you started Tech Will Tech Will Save Us, and, and what you're all about. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Tech Will Save Us is basically a toy brand for the creator generation, a generation that will be creating, producing and inventing with technology, not just consuming it. And we've done that through essentially developing a range of play experiences, which have physical products at the heart of them and a digital platform that helps kids to bring their toys to life with electronics programming um, and content so that's really at the heart of kind of what we do Um, and obviously that kind of a business requires a very diverse team to deliver that to the world Um, we sell to 87 countries we have an office in new york now um, and we sell through retail e-commerce and learning so schools learning partners etc so a lot of people have great ideas But what was it that made Tech Will Save Us a a reality for you? I think there were kind of three things that really were the strengths of how we started. One, I think my background is in um, design and branding and innovation. And I think my background in kind of brand, working with businesses like Skype and General Electric and Product Red, really meant that we started the business with a very clear mission and a very clear purpose for what we were trying to do. And that I think gave us the foundations to really be clear about what we were building and why. And I think that is a really solid foundation to then build a team around, begin to proliferate into products and services because it gives you a foundation for why you're doing what you're doing that's bigger than revenue, bigger than engagement metrics. It's about a much bigger remit for the world, which I think is important. So we did that from the beginning. I think the second thing maybe is the skill sets of myself and my co-founder, because we both come from design and creative technology backgrounds. We inherently are, we learn by doing. We put things in the world, we test them, we get feedback, we iterate them, we make them better. That is just actually a part of the design process. Um, Some people call that agile. There's lots of ways to describe it, but I think as a designer, as a creator, that was a really natural place for us to start. And so, you know, we did do assessments of the market, etc. but the way we really learned was by making things, testing them and putting them into the world, which I think allowed us to move fast. Um, and also we could rely on our own skills to do that, which I think was really important. We've now reached, you know, the edges of some of our skills and we definitely have needed to build teams around us to be able to fill the blind spots and the gaps and quite frankly, do a ton of stuff better than we can. 
But I think that core kind of skill set allowed us to get moving and working quickly. Um, so that was really important to us. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that Tech Service is not a purpose-driven company, as I noticed your business plan, which is visually articulated on the wall there. And I think it says, you know, what you're going to do explosively over the next two years. Even the, even the language is, is very different, which is, you know, which is great to see. So what didn't you know when you started out and how would you do things differently now? I mean, you don't know anything until you start. (laughs) There were a ton of things I didn't know and probably still don't know. Um, I think there may be two points to focus on in this question. One is building a product-based business. So a lot of people talk about hardware being hard. It is. It's hard. It has complexity in it that is different than potentially purely digital-based businesses. And I didn't fully know, as you can't possibly know the extent of the complexity that you're going to be dealing with from supply chains to procurement to, you know, digital development, IoT. I mean, the list is endless, the complexities that are embedded in making physical product. And with all of that is the satisfaction that you're making physical products. So something to show all of that complexity is still all worth it because we have this amazing range of products that we've been able to tangibly create in the world and have amazing kids using them and upskilling and learning and expressing themselves through you know tools and skills that they might have not had access to otherwise so didn't know that and now have an incredibly wide knowledge base of cogs and supply chains and manufacturing and wholesale and you know all of these things which I just didn't know before we started um I I think the 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 second thing is how important team is and building a team of a players is you can have the most amazing strategy that's just rock solid with all the metrics that you need and all the milestones that you need if there are people sitting in the wrong seats doing the wrong things or you don't have the team to execute doesn't matter how great your strategy is you you won't deliver that strategy or any strategy for that matter um and I think I kind of intuitively knew that through you know my professional career but it is very different when you're responsible for that when you know the entire kind of complexity of the business and when also you've been responsible for recruiting a lot of those people it's even more palpable how important that is in building the right team at the right level is. And I think that maybe is the crux of how I might have done things differently. Knowing what I know now, knowing the processes I know now around recruitment that I think are actually really great that we now really rely on. I don't, I don't think some of our hires have been extraordinary and some of those extraordinary hires have been lucky. <laughs> yeah. And at a certain stage, no longer is it luck. Of course, there's still intuition around hiring and, you know, those kinds of things. But we have a much more rigorous process and a much clearer um, framework and expectation for what level we need to recruit at and why. Um, mainly because of mistakes that we've made. And so I think that's probably the main thing I would do differently is just a more rigorous process from the beginning in recruiting and ensuring we had the right team to deliver at the right level. And can you share a little bit more around what you're currently doing now to attract A players? I think, you know, it's particularly Mm -hmm. useful as people are starting companies to hear someone who's gone through the journey and now fairly happy with their process 
Yeah, um, we've worked really hard on our process. Um, it, one of our values as a business is around a love of learning. So constantly, not just learning in the sense of our products are about learning, but as individuals learning faster than we need to learn. And so I've done a lot of learning around best practice recruitment, including working with some coaches and learning from some great recruiters and also learning from some terrible ones around best practice. And I think we have a pretty tight um, process, which is based on a system called top grading. Mm -hmm. um, again, I think one of the lessons is like, you don't have to invent this. A lot of these things exist um, and, and we can modify them to feel more ours but we can start with a methodology that is tried and tested. And so top grading has been a really important part of recruiting really well um, and allowing that to be a tool for everyone to use, not just me to do. Um, and I think two main lessons are really clear job scorecards from the beginning. Like what is the mission? What is the objectives? What are the experiences? And what are the KPIs this role is going to be measured on? And those clear job scorecards make recruiting really fast because you're going through a pipeline of individuals and you're literally able to go through it super quickly because there are going to be no yes, no yes. They, they either do or they don't. And there's no real explanation around some of those things, which makes the process much quicker and also the recruiter much more confident about the decisions around who goes through and who doesn't. Um, and then the other thing is, knowing what we know about the A players that we've been able to recruit in the business, having a, a, a level of experience now that we just won't go below, right? It's, you've got to have done this. And if you haven't, as much as we might love you, as much as your values might be in line with us, it's just not going to ever be right for you or for us. And being much clearer about that. Um, and I think that comes with maturity, but I think that has been a really important, um, lesson that we've learned over time it's interesting you're the first i guess early stage growth entrepreneur that's mentioned top grading to mm -hmm. me like i was trained in it years ago and i was in the corporate world and it was mm -hmm. very useful to get an outcome focused team make sure the right fit but i haven't heard a lot of people using it recently mm -hmm. so it's it's good to know it still has an application for you know fast growth businesses as well totally I, yeah i mean i think Again, you don't have to invent these things. There are really great methods that you can lift and make yours to ensure that you have solid processes that can that are scalable yeah. to other people in the business. Totally agree. Who was it that championed you along the way? Oh gosh, there's been so many. We've been, I mean, I'm sure many entrepreneurs have this experience. We've been so fortunate that at different stages of our development, we've had some amazing kind of, you know, champions that have just really believed in us as founders and the business's mission and what we've been trying to achieve. And, you know, some have stayed with us throughout the journey and consistently stay relevant and have experience that we continue to tap into. Um, and others, I think, you know, have at different stages been more relevant. Actually, I'm, I'm actually going to, going to maybe deviate a little bit. I think the person that's championed personally me the most is definitely my co-founder. I mean, this is my only experience founding a business. I've been fortunate to work with businesses that have had founders. So I know the dynamic, but shit's going to happen. Yes. Right. The roller coaster is real. <laughs> it is a real experience. And there are definite moments where you cannot share that with everyone because it's not helpful no. to you. It's not helpful to other people we have obviously a very intimate relationship because we're married but most importantly he is a solid freaking co-founder yeah he is a 
solid believer in what we're doing. He is a huge champion of what I'm bringing to the business and I am of what he's bringing to the business. And we have a very honest relationship around what we need to be doing at different stages. And when we see that the other person is, you know, wavering in their, whether it is confidence or, you know, a lack of knowledge around a certain area, I think like first and foremost, that has definitely been enormous. And then I think second has been some of our investors have been incredible. I mean, just like so amazingly supportive of everything, even in the most difficult times, which is the test, right? If they can stand by you during hard moments, then like they're in it just like you. And then we have some wonderful advisors. So I have two, I have three now, but I had two for a very long time advisors that I meet with regularly, regularly and formally. Um, they have been incredible champions through the process and yeah. And of, and of me and of all of the challenges and opportunities we face, they've again stuck through it. Like that's why they're doing it because they want to be on that journey. And are these advisors that are investors as well? Yes. Yeah. And are they subject they, matter experts? They started as advisors okay, and eventually also became investors as well. Um, which I think was actually a really good thing. It wasn't incentivized by, anything until there was really clear value being exchanged. I mean, I have this really great experience with one of our advisors who was part of the business since the beginning. He's the first person I said we were going to start this. Um, yes, he has um, kind of uh, expertise in a particular area, so IoT and hardware. Um, and he specifically, um, there was a point in our experience when he was advising where I wanted to give him equity. I wanted that to be part of our exchange because there was so much value being exchanged and he wanted to invest because he believed in what we were doing and he was adding value. And I think that's such a nice feeling to have. It's not just about the money. It's not just about the advice. It's about this exchange of value. That was such a great feeling to want to do that to someone or to, to, to want someone to have value because they're building it with you. So that was clearly a pivotal moment for you. Can you share another pivotal moment that got tech will save us to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, there's been a few. I think maybe a pivotal moment actually that's happening now. We now are building large-scale sales channels with big box retailers um, globally. So we're now going into Target and Best Buy in the U.S., which is over you know, 3,000 stores combined. They're some of the largest retailers in the world. Um, these, you know, these are things we've been dreaming about for, for years, like almost preparing the foundations to be able to do. Those are so pivotal in, in the sense that it requires us to have built good foundations to deliver it, but also in really pushing the edges of our capacity, our skill sets, our knowledge, et cetera, which, which is amazing because we've been almost training to, to get to this moment. I think that's a really pivotal shift that's happening. And, it, you know, it's felt across the business because we've worked so hard to get to this stage. I think the other pivotal moment is when we had our first away day, like our first formal, we're going to plan, right? We're not just going to execute. We're going to plan for a whole year to come with targets, really, you know, and again, aligning with, you know, our values, our mission, refining that as a team, 
having the team to be able to do that. And we went to Somerset to a really special place in my life. Um, There's now a special place in our life, which was great. And it created the context for us as a team to really be able to have those like naughty conversations and also be really creative away from the business. And I think that was pivotal because it gave us the almost muscle memory for what it feels like to build something together, a plan together that then it's our job to execute it in different kinds of ways. But I think that was super pivotal for us and also really um, satisfying to have been able to facilitate something like that and have outcomes that are now being felt, you know, across the business is, was, was really important. So how big was the team and and when was it when you did that first sort of away day and planning session? Yeah, we did our first away day in 2015, I believe. No, it was 2016. Yeah, because we raised our first round in 2015. We did our first away day in 2000. No, it was in 2015, at the end of 2015. Um, And yeah, I think the, the team was 15 people. I think it was 15 people. We had a small executive team of about five, four people and one of our advisors came to it as well. And yeah, it became, it became part of our rhythms. Now we do annual away days. Um, we iterate the agenda now and how we kind of use that time together, but it became really pivotal in kind of formalizing processes that feel really in line with our values and who we are. And are they always in Somerset? Yes. Fantastic. So that's still a special place. Yeah. What would be the first thing I'd notice about the way you do things at Tech Will Save Us? I think it's really, really palpable um, that we do really cross-disciplinary work, that if you were to come work on a project, although it might be delivering an outcome to marketing or it might be delivering an outcome to um, sales, you most likely would be working with someone in product, potentially a developer, someone in production might be feeding into the process. We have very cross-disciplinary ways of working, mainly because it's really important that those insights and that kind of diverse perspective is feeding into outcomes. Um, So I think that's a really um, kind of palpable thing that people always comment on when, when they've started working with us. I think the other thing is, and I think this is really important. There's a kind of rigor and a discipline to how we work, but it's all very playful. We're able to have quite rigorous, high expectations of the way we work in a very disciplined way, but with really fun and funny kind of ways of doing it. So for example, we do quarterly OKRs. When we set our OKRs with the team at the end, when we share everything, we do this weird dance. I mean, it's totally bizarre, but but it's a, quite a rigorous thing that we've just done. We've just set like all of the objectives for the whole team for the quarter, which is a big deal and it's quite important. But we start that process with this funny dance, which the reason it's important to do these kinds of things, one, it just kind of happened and now it's just stuck. Um, and I think those rituals are really important. But two, it also you know really helps to level everyone in this space because it's the CEO doing it, the FD is doing it assemblers are doing like everyone's doing it and it really does allow everyone to just kind of let go of whatever's bothering you and really focus on what we're doing in that moment um so we have kind of a lot of rigor around our processes but we have quite funny sometimes weird rituals um but i think those are the things that make a business interesting like good and bad i'm sure but i think those are really important um and then i think the the last thing is 
we definitely have a collection of values that are very visible. Like when you go through the values, you can see everyone really demonstrates them just in who they are and what they do. Um, and people have commented on that a lot when they started how, how people are so passionate about what we're doing and why they're doing it or bringing really clear expertise to their area of the business. If I asked your team what you were like to work with, mm-hmm. apart from obviously your brilliant dance moves, <laughs> what would they say? They might not say that. <laughs> um, oh, I'm just doing a 360 degree review, so I can tell you exactly what they'd say. And this is your first one? No, I've done them before, okay. but um, some of the people in the team doing the review are not people I, I've worked with them for the last year, as opposed to some of them I've worked with for two years. Um, I think maybe there's kind of three things that people would kind of say one, I have very high expectations and I expect people to be really accountable for the things they've committed to and to be accountable for when things don't work, learning from them, iterating and, and, and really not making those mistakes again. Um, so I think there's a definitely an accountability and a rigor. I think there's a kind of, um, I don't know, infectious passion for what we do um, that really comes across in everything in good and bad times that what we're doing and why we're doing it is really important for the customers we're serving which are kids and ensuring that those experiences are the best things we can possibly deliver um, and then I think the last thing is is a is it almost insatiable desire to learn constantly. And I think that, again, I have to lead by example. I mean, I do it because I want to. Um, you know, if if this journey is about everything, it, anything, it's about learning. And I learn a lot from lots of different things, whether it's books, whether it's um, events, whether it's advisors, whether it's coaches. I'm constantly finding information to solve not the problems right now but the ones we're going to get to um and to do that as quickly as possible with the things that i believe are the best approaches to do that um and that's i think everyone would say i I do that a lot (laughs) how do you approach the difficult conversations with your team you dance your way through them yes definitely (laughs) I think it obviously depends on what the difficult conversations are. Like there's personal difficult conversations that are not about us, but sometimes about someone else. I think we approach those with, um, you know, a lot of empathy and understanding, but also a a kind of line between what what we can really do and and to support that person in whatever the thing is that's challenging um, and to hopefully create the conditions for them to get through it or to support them in, how it's going to, you know, evolve or change. Um, I think there's difficult things internally. Um, it tends to not be a conversation with just one person. It tends to be a conversation with multiple people in the sense that generally there are complexities that are being dealt with that are not just one person's kind of sole responsibility. And the more that we can solve them with all the indicators that are going to help us solve it, the better. Um, And then I think the last thing is a lot of times challenges come from behaviors, not just about skills, not just about deadlines, but about behaviors that are not allowing particular individuals or teams to unlock what the problem really is. 
And I think that's been something that I've definitely learned a lot this year, really focusing on behaviors and the, the kind of blind spots that people have and helping them to, one, acknowledge them and two, then really commit to how they're going to create practices to really work on them. I think one of the biggest lessons this year has definitely been the behaviors tend to be one of the key challenges. Skills can be learned. Smart people can learn lots of things. Behaviors are the hardest things for people to work on because sometimes they're really deep. (laughs) Very hard to change. Mm -hmm. If you IPO'd your company tomorrow, you set up a a new startup, who's on your dream board? That's a tough question. I think on my dream board would be a combination of weirdly not necessarily market expertise in our exact space, um, but diversity around the areas that inform and will help our space be more true to what our kind of vision is around the 21st century kind of toy business. I think one key part of that would be Um, potentially someone that's in um, the world of research and development around childhood development and play. There's a few amazing people. So like Mitch Resnick from MIT, who's incredible, runs a lifelong kindergarten program at MIT. I think he would be an amazing person on the board of a business like ours. I think coupled with that is a real rigor around kind of commercial um, ambition. So potentially... um, one of our investors is the ex-CEO of Dyson. Someone like that would be an amazing part of our board as well, mainly because of, again, the experience that he's had, but also um, the kind of area that he's focused on from a product development perspective, from a brand perspective, the importance of engineering in their business, um, et cetera. Um, and then I think maybe last would be something a bit maybe less obvious I think it'd be interesting to have someone that maybe has a a lot of expertise in like a particular channel, which is very indicative of the future of channels that will be important to us like YouTube. So maybe someone that has really scaled YouTube in a very significant way, probably for a kid's audience and really leveraging some of the lessons around those channels. I think, I think the future of kids and the future of, of toy is not where it's been. It's definitely a very different um, trajectory. And I think the more we can have that diversity at board level, the more we'll be able to make bold decisions and not just um, follow kind of already paved pathways. And then, of course, myself and my co-founder should probably be there as well. (laughs) Without a doubt. What is your superpower? And is there only one? Hmm. I think there's maybe two. So I think one is definitely, they may be the things that my team would say that I do the most in the business. I think one is the learning. I, I mean, it's pretty, it's quite crazy sometimes how much I, <laughs> I absorb things and read and actively seek to make improvements. I, I really like doing it. I really want to do it. Um, and it kind of happens all the time, every day in all kinds of ways. Maybe the other superpower is my ability to be very kind of high level and operational at the same time. I can get deep into things and be very executional, and I can also go way high above that and be very kind of 
broad about where I think things can go. Well, they're both very good superpowers to have. Thanks. I wish I could say I was invisible or something. That would be really helpful. (laughs) It would be very helpful. (laughs) You mentioned the close relationship you have with your co-founder, but who else do you lean on or pick up the phone to when things get tough? Uh, Definitely my advisors. Yeah. My advisors are, they're, they're amazing. They're, and again, they're, they're really in it through the thick and the thin. They have real visibility on the business as a whole. And I think that's partially because we've created a relationship like that. Um, and partially because of who they are as kind of operators in the world They're they are operators. They're not, you know, I'm going to tell you this big lofty strategic kind of thing. And then off you go and see if it works. They're operators. And so they're equally driven by getting things done and doing them and solving problems. And so I think they definitely are the ones that I call, and I definitely call them at all kinds of crazy hours, as do they for me. (laughs) And um, you mentioned there was one advisor you worked with in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. How did you meet these advisors? Did you actively seek them out or were they previous kind of professional acquaintances? Yeah, so... I've had kind of a few advisors over the course of the journey, um, some of which I've outgrown, where they were, you know, wonderful for a particular period of time and really helped with certain things. But there are definitely moments where we were beyond what they've done. And that was an interesting experience to have to go through. I'm, I'm very much an advisory type of person. You know, I, I like to gather information to make decisions from people, experiences, Um, I like to see how other people do things to then make my own kind of way in that. So I do that anyway. Um, With these two advisors, the first one, um, I had known him already. He had a really successful um, digital business called Berg that then pivoted to create Berg Cloud, which was a um, IoT-based platform basically for developing IoT solutions. Um, And... I had already known about him anyway, and I actually met him at a, well, saw him again at a conference that we were both invited to, which was the Do Lectures. It's like, yeah, so we were at the Do Lectures, and I believe we were like at a campfire roasting a marshmallow or something like that, <laughs> and I had made a decision that I was going to during that weekend. We had not started Tech Will Save Us. I had not quit my job yet. It wasn't a thing. It had a kind of purpose, and that was about it, that I was going to kind of test it out with people and talk about it to make it real. And he was the first person I did that with, and he was really excited about it. And so then we decided, well, we should talk about it again. And it really just started from there. And then we formalized it. And I think at the beginning, interestingly, he was running his business at the time as well. And I think it was a bit reciprocal. And then it definitely became much more of a formal, we're going to focus on product together. And this is the way we're going to work. And that was great. That kind of rigor we're still really, you know, good friends. I really like, he's a great person, but it's great to have that rigor when you're working with an advisor so that you can really get value out of them and they get value out of the experience too. The second one I was introduced to, um, by, we had a CFO, um, it's our only other CFO until now, um, who basically said I was, yeah, I was meeting investors and meeting different people. And he basically said, I think you should meet someone. She's the smartest, most amazing woman I've ever met in business in my whole life. And I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. Um, And so I met her and she really is. And 
So her name's Tracy Dory. She started Kindred Capital. Um, she's amazing. And yeah, we, we pretty quickly formalized our relationship and she's been working with us for almost one and a half, almost two years now. Um, and it's been an amazing journey working with someone like her and also the wider Kindred team, but specifically with, with Tracy. Fantastic. You've spoke a bit about diversity even in kind of your dream board, and I think you're someone that has real vision, but could you just maybe articulate for me the importance you see in mm-hmm. having diverse talent running companies? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've seen it in our business. For whatever reason, by the nature of our business, we've been able to attract very diverse people. Um, and I mean diverse in gender and ethnicity and age, um, in you know economic background, like the whole gamut. And I think what that's done is a few things. One, it's meant that we're really questioning and um, constructively looking at our decision-making because we have different perspectives driving it trying to make as few uninformed assumptions as possible or testing those assumptions to really understand it. And that having that, those diverse backgrounds helps us to ensure that we're not making naive assumptions nor assumptions that are going to be detrimental to the outcomes that we're trying to create. Um, the second thing means is that we have much more, um, I would say, positive conflict where we're discussing things, right? We're, you know, we don't have boring meetings. (laughs) We have meetings where people have opinions about stuff. One, because they care about the business. Two, because they're clear about what they need to do. And three, because they have opinions because they come from backgrounds that they've been able to develop very clear perspectives of the world around them. And I think that means that the meetings become really, you know, and again, I say conflict in the healthiest way of the word because we're able to talk about things like, you know, we're serving children. We're not serving white kids. We're serving kids at large and we have to make decisions around gender. We have to make decisions around um, positioning and we have to make decisions around inclusivity. We have to make decisions around price. We have to make decisions around, um, you know, where we're marketing and how we're doing that and having diverse perspectives helps us to make way more informed and quite frankly, I think way more bold decisions around that. Um, and then I think at the executive level, there have been moments where it's literally been me and a bunch of guys in many situations we've had it, you know, for a little while we had, I was only the only female on our executive level. Um, and it definitely meant that there, you know, I obviously brought a bit of diversity into that, but I can palpably feel the difference. We have a much more diverse team now, um, on the executive level. I I definitely felt the difference when we were making decisions purely because of the way we were approaching things, the, you know, frame of references that we had, the, you know, fact that some of us have kids and some of us don't, and some of us are moms and some of us are lesbians. And that just means that we're bringing much more interesting perspectives to our conversation um, that I think help us be a, a way better business. And even, and I would, you know, even even at investment level, like, you know, our invest in a, you know, this is not intentional, but our, you know, our board is male. I'm the only female and I can feel it. And, and it's not just about man or woman. I think it's about just perspectives. They're privileged men <laughs> and, you know, I love them and I think they're great people and they've been on the journey with us and there's no criticism about who they are. 
It's just about at board level, it's going to be really important for us to be able to have more diversity. So we really are in a workshop here. So I Sorry. think something's just yeah. kicked into we'll gear. It, it's one of the. It'll stop. It's one of the. Um, the next door, they're lowering their... Oh, right. Yeah, sorry, it will stop. <laughs> sorry about that. That's okay. That was great. Really great answer. What does success look like for you? Success. It's such a, like, tricky word. Um, I mean, there's success personally, and there's, like, success for the business, and there's all kinds of success, I guess. This is such a cheesy statement, but it really does resonate with me often. Um, I don't think this is about, it's not about an end point. It's absolutely about the journey. So success is really about making the journey as, you know, productive and as fun as possible. Cause it's, again, it's a freaking roller coaster. And if it's not going to be fun and you're not going to learn a lot of stuff on the way, why do it? <laughs> so I think success is that the journey stays and that we can iterate it to, to continue to be challenging in a good way and you know helping us all to grow in a really positive way um and i think for the business i mean my co-founder and i've talked about this you know the long long-term success is that we've helped to inspire a generation that then biotech will save us for their kids you know the the same way i want my son to experience certain things that i did when i was younger because they were so fun and so interesting and added value and and this is a longer goal, but yeah, we want a whole generation of kids that, you know, they can't imagine their kids' lives without Tech Will Save Us products in them because they are so fun and so valuable and consistently um, help kids to learn skills that are relevant for, you know, the, the age of technology that we're in and that will change and we should be able to change with that as an organization. So I think that is, that would be pretty successful. In some of your interviews, you've spoken about blending mm -hmm. rather than balancing your work-life responsibilities. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, so and this is just my perspective, obviously, but I've never been a kind of, you know, go to work, go home at six. That's just never been my thing as a, as a designer, as a creator. The blend has always been there, but I think in my earlier kind of years, I made it a struggle. I made it more of a, I need to separate it. I can only be healthy if I'm separating these things and pulling them apart. And I just think that's not, that's not what, whatever was going to work for me. And I think there was definitely a point where it became about blend, not balance. And that weirdly kind of eliminated this tension and allowed me to, to not, not have, I, I have boundaries. I definitely have boundaries and rituals to ensure that I can, you know, be very present in different things. But it also means that, you know, my son is, he knows exactly what mommy and daddy do and he knows tech will save us and he knows our products and his friends know our products and his friends know our, what we do. And that feels really amazing. That feels wonderful that our family is thriving and our business is thriving and the good and the bad things that we're learning are informing how we become better as a family. I think also the blend is really evident in like the learning I do. It's, I'm not just learning how to be like a leader. I'm learning how to be a better person in general, which then definitely triggers down into my relationships with my parents, with my husband, with my son. I mean, again, I think that kind of blend I really enjoy because it means I'm not just like, you know, 
over here at work becoming this kind of person that does this kind of thing with these kinds of approaches and a certain persona. And then I go home and I'm something else and I have to work on being that thing. I'm working on being a better person in general that can make better decisions, listen well, you know, help people to be decisive about things. And that feels again, really good to me. And that blend feels really good to me. And, and so I keep doing it basically. So it sounds like you can congruently be your whole self. Yes. I, I believe I am doing that, which is not easy. <laughs> um, but I'd rather do that than, than compromise parts of who I am to kind of fit into something else. And I'm fortunate in that I can do that. I've created a business that allows people to do that. Um, we've definitely created the conditions for that to be possible. And, and I think that's really important. And I was fortunate again in my professional career to be able to do that in my professional career. So when I was working for a business, the culture allowed people to do that. And I was fortunate enough to have leaders in my life that represented that to me in their own way, in a different way. Um, but again, having those examples, I think has been really important to me and one knowing it's possible, right? Like I think references are not about mimicking. It's about just knowing that certain things are possible so that you can create a pathway to get there in the way you want to be that. But just knowing it's possible, I think is kind of half the challenge. So lastly, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give to female founders or even potential female founders that are thinking about starting up or doing their, their first fundraise? What, what would you say to them? I think there's a few things. Um, I think one is definitely about like understanding the purpose, the mission, the, the thing you're trying to deliver in the world and being as clear and as concise about what that is because that will basically be your, your rock, your anchor for all the stuff that happens in the journey. It should be the thing that helps you make good decisions around what not to do, around what to do, about who to work with, how to work with them, etc. So creating those foundations from a, I would I call it brand, from a brand perspective, I think is, is, is really worth spending the time doing. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to hire someone to do it for you. There are, there are tools that you can use that can help you do it yourself. Um, and in some ways it's probably good to do that. So I think that's definitely a really important thing. A quick point on what the tools are. Yeah. I mean, there's things like the business model canvas, those kinds of things are really useful. Um, yeah, I highly recommend using tools like that for anyone, right? Whether you're creative or financial, I just think those tools are really helpful. It also means that you have a thing to show someone, this is my business. This is how it works. That's always very handy to have things to to reference um, when talking about a, a business that doesn't exist yet, quite frankly. I think with fundraising, I think one of the things I've learned from some very wise female founders um, that I've been fortunate enough to, to become friends with, it's really important that you understand the dynamic of the fundraising kind of process that at a lot of times, and I'm definitely guilty of that, you're going into that kind of with, you're in like the child seat. You're like, please, can I have the, you know, the money? This is my business. You're confident in saying it, but it definitely feels like the power is, there is a power thing happening. And I think it's really important to go into those meetings with questions around why is that particular investor interested in your space? What is their knowledge about your space? Almost before you even start, 
because I think unfortunately the process of raising money can be very time wasting and you can end a meeting really early by knowing that someone's just actually not really interested in or has any experience in your space and it's not worth having a conversation and I think it you know it requires definitely a level of confidence to be able to do that but it's worth doing that like if you have a consumer facing business and you're talking to an investor that only has invested in SaaS businesses, the likelihood that they're going to invest in your business is very low. And the earlier you understand that, the better. So I think it's being really clear about who you should be talking to and why and understanding their interest in your space and why they're interested in you as an organization. Because I think that can help you frame your dialogue really clear. Then I think the second thing or the last thing is maybe about mentors and advisors. Finding, and it doesn't have to be formal at the beginning, finding people that you admire for whatever reasons and really hearing about their stories and their journeys um, and how they've built the you know, infrastructure to support them over their journey. Because again, I think for me, it's those models give you insights into the model you're gonna build for yourself. Everyone's gonna have a model. It might be advisors, it might be a chairperson, it could be lots of things, but I think surrounding yourself with really talented, really smart people that, quite frankly, you like, right? You have to like them. If they're just smart and you actually think they're terrible, you probably shouldn't spend time with them. Um, I think is really important in the journey. And finding those people and, you know, growing relationships. I think sometimes people look for advisors and they go into those situations and without any exchange and without any clarity. And I think that's really hard for really busy, really smart people that want to advise. They also don't have time. (laughs) So the more you can say, this is what I'm looking for. This is why I'm looking for it. I'd like to build a relationship over the course of blah, 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 get to know each other, then formalize something that probably gives people a lot more confidence and that you know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I think doing that early is really helpful. Well, thank you, Bethany Kobe. It's been really insightful and great to hear about your journey. I'm sure it's only going to be more successful. And I look forward to catching up again in the near future. Thank you. You've been listening to the Workin' With podcast series. You can find us on iTunes and at workinwith.com. That's W-E-R-K-I-N with.com. dot com.